there is there is this assumption that all we have to do is go through real crisis and then we will change. But that's one of the very things that doesn't take account of our psychology and our, the psychology of resistance and denial. The power of this instinct that says, no, I've got to survive. The harder it gets, the more people are going to want to survive unless they've gone through some sort of shift in orientation. And that's very scary. I think that's very scary. You only have to look at history to see what happens when, when people feel threatened. Hello and welcome to Further Reaches, the podcast where we seek to understand what lies beyond the edge of our current understanding. I'm your host, Kaz Tanner, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Maintany. Paul was the lecturer in a course I took last year called Transpersonal Eco-Psychology. I took this class because I was really fascinated in trying to more deeply understand our human relationship to planet Earth. And why do we intellectually know that our behaviors are causing the system to break down, causing ecological crisis, but we're not significantly changing our behaviors and actions? So we are going to touch on the transformative power of our everyday choices, the ancient wisdom that we've ignored for too long, and we're going to explore the critical question of what is our role as humans in the life of planet Earth. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Paul Maintany is an ecologist, anthropologist, ecosystemic, transpersonal psychotherapist, and spiritual accompanier because of three questions that have concerned him since childhood. Why are we so cruel to each other? How come we are killing off Earth and its species? How do we and how do I fit into this beautiful Earth? Seeking to understand these questions has shaped the direction of his research and practice in practical nature conservation and ecology, ecological education, and human resistance to converting declared values and priorities into everyday life behavior. He now prefers life as an independent researcher, but has previously researched at Oxford and Open Universities. University College London, and Bocconi Management School in Milan. For 25 years, he taught a master's degree on education for sustainability, and he currently teaches transpersonal eco-psychology for the Aleph Trust and Liverpool John Moores University. Paul, hi, welcome to the Further Reaches podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for being on. To start with, I'd love to hear more about your childhood inspiration and the evolution of that interest over time. Right. Well, I had these three questions. I can't explain the mystery of why these questions came to me. Um, as far as I know, they didn't come to my siblings. But they came to me. Um, why are we so cruel to each other, extending into... Why are we so cruel to 
our co-inhabitants in Earth. I'd like to say in planet Earth because it reminds us that we're part of it. Without apparently a second thought to making these other species and habitats extinct. Um, and the third question came, so I think in a way those were my two first psychological questions and ecological, clearly. Um, the third one was my first, on hindsight, these are not the words, of course, I used as a, as a seven-year-old, but on hindsight, the third one was my first spiritual question, transpersonal question, which came from, as a child, seeing the Earthrise photograph of, um, from, I think it was Apollo 8, and I like to remember that that probably, and I can feel this, <laughs> I can feel it every time I say it still. The first time that the planet Earth, colour photograph of planet Earth was ever taken in the history, as far as we know, of the universe. Now, that's quite an awesome thought, I think. And um, I can remember other people being fascinated with the moon, and I was fascinated with this Earth this beautiful blue fluorescent almost pearl of a thing <laughs> that all of my experience would be on. I couldn't experience anything anywhere else. And so, and I realized even then, I, I was uh, less than 10 years old. I can remember even then uh, thinking or knowing that planet Earth operates in a sort of dynamic balance, that this was a unity, this was a one thing. And it seemed that the problems on Earth came from this species that I was a member of, that I am a member of. And that, that bemused me. Why? Why? What are we doing? That, why are we doing this? But that led me to another question, because I knew we were a species, I knew we were a biological animal. And so I asked, well, where do we fit in to this, this planet? Where do I fit in? And many, many, many years later, although it started when I was 14, I started to, to, to recognise that in spiritual traditions, wisdom traditions, cross-culturally, a key question has been that, where do we fit in? Not only how do I have an experience, but how do we actually convert that experience into action, behavior, meaningful action and behavior? Yeah, I'd love to hone in on the aspect that you mentioned about thinking about where we as a species on planet Earth fit in. I think it's quite a prevalent perception that humans are some sort of cancer or like a virus on the planet. And so what are your thoughts on this? The thing is that the way I, my analysis of things has led me to the point of recognising that we, we, we have a big choice about whether we live our lives to try and find our functional place in the ecosystem or we draw on the ecosystem for our own self-orientated interests. And when we do that... I think even the, the analysis I've presented and the various things I've written 
does actually point to being like a virus. I think virus more than a cancer because um, a virus is, you, I know this is a controversial point, but a very, very primitive, very, very, when I say primitive, I mean early, a very early in evolutionary terms organism. And we've had the coronavirus, right? And if we were to ask, if we could ask the coronavirus, what is your purpose and meaning in life? Well, we can empirically see that what it does is it grows. It grows, it reproduces, it takes opportunistic, well, opportunities to, as we understand it, or some people understand it, cross species barriers, any way that it can spread and grow. And in doing that, I think it is exhibiting a really basic instinct, what the psychoanalysts call the id, an instinct for survival, for growth, because we hear even in economics these days, well, we have to grow to survive. It's a, it is a kind of ex a cultural expression of a biological impulse that we share, we share with every other species, even a tree, I'm looking out of my window, at a tree, a tree grows in order to maximize the amount of light energy, sunlight energy, that it can synthesize for itself through photosynthesis, convert into food, into sugar, grow and reproduce. The only limits on that, uh, the only limits, the limits, the constraints on that growth is the amount of sunlight energy that, that it can absorb naturally. We have um, an extra source of sunlight energy that is thousands, I don't know what the actual figure is, but thousands, millions of times more powerful than raw sunlight converted through the, through the food chains from green plants to herbivores to carnivores, um, which would constrain us if we were only lim if we were only limited by that energy. But you know we have fossil fuels, oil, coal, gas. Before that, forests. This is, as it were, fossilized in the uh, fossilized sunlight in the case of fossil fuels, and so that has given us the opportunity that we have chosen to take big time to have a to run rampant with this instinct that's this is how it seems to me it is and in individual biological survival terms we're very we're the most successful species of earth but because of this extra supply of energy and which in turn creates this illusion, this imaginary idea that we can grow infinitely, which every species would do if it could, <laughs> if it could, but it can't. But this has given us the idea that we can. And so we've become this threat that's saturated, the threat to everything else. Yeah, so we've lost the natural constraints on our growth which is ultimately 
putting our survival into threat. Well, we have we haven't if we haven't actually lost them biologically, we haven't lost them ecologically. We haven't. We're still constrained by that. But the the our our intellect, our cleverness, has our technology has been applied to finding extra sources of sunlight, so that we we've created this illusion that we that we've escaped it. There's a, a series of uh, documentaries that were shown in 1992, which I've shown people ever since, on the Vimeo. I put them on Vimeo, um, which um, which describes this very well. Prisoners of the Sun, it's called. Those videos are, are really good. I, I highly recommend checking out Paul's Vimeo so you can watch those. I remember in your course, Paul, learning about how the greenhouse effect was essentially discovered in like 1824. Um, yet we have known this rationally for so long, but we're not actually like enacting meaningful change. So what do you think is going on there? Why is this like factual information not enough to change people's minds or to promote better strategies for sustainability? Because I think, again, the power of the imagination, the imaginary, um, applied in this instinctual way, that it's all about us. It's me, I, me, me, mine, in George Harrison's infamous words. It's all about us. And so we have to use our intellect and our ingenuity to satisfy what is a really basic early instinct for growth. And I think and that there's, that's then elaborated through belief, through whole belief systems, whole philosophies to, to justify ourselves. And uh, the, I think belief is much more powerful. I don't remember who said this first. Um, but the belief is more powerful than knowledge in terms of what we do. So at that time, beginning of the Industrial Revolution, this was like miraculous, this discovery of, of fossil fuels, the, the inventions that it, that it precipitated, that it stimulated. This was going to, well, as we know, make us developed. We were going to become comfortable. We were going. To this was evolution, and the evolutionary theory was often used to justify this. This was seen as a continuation, as indeed it was in biology, in the sort of biological terms, um, the the survival of the fittest, which was not originally Darwin's term, by the way. It was Herbert Spencer, an economist, philosopher. Um, so. That was the priority. That became the priority to improve our standards of living, to profit, grow. Growth was the priority. I think this is why. And all the way up to it's just really about 10, 15 years ago, it, not as much as 15, that finally recognition of planetary heating, I think I'm going to call it planetary heating, has really become mainstream. And the result of that in many respects has been a deepening of the resistance and the 
the resistance to change in our actual core meanings and behaviours. And this I find really, really worrying. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes it does. Thank you. Um, so why do you think that as a species we have so much resistance to to change? And what can we do to adjust our beliefs to make it more meaningful to want to live in a way that is sustainable? I'm not sure we have resistance to change per se. After all, from pre-industrial from agricultural times to pre-industrial to industrial to advanced capitalism, market capitalism as we have now, that's enormous change in a certain respect, but it's change all in one direction. I think the resistance we have is to a, what the anthropologist Gregory Bateson calls second order change. A change in the assumptions that the changes we have put in in train are based on. So it's a change in actually, I talk about to the basic choice as being a consuming mode of finding meaning and a contextualizing mode of finding meaning. The consuming mode being growth, self-interest. It's all about me or us because the us, it's also the us, whether it be family, town, identity generally, include all the way up to species. Um, and that is what we change constantly to try and squeeze more out, get more out of it, out of um, the rest of nature, essentially. Prisons of the Sun emphasises this very much. Um, the other type of... the other choice that we have, which I think is reflected within the wisdom traditions throughout cultures, throughout time, is what I call the contextualizing mode, where instead of it's all for me, I use this gesture, consuming, for consuming and growing, it's this gesture. It's, wow, I'm actually part of this. Isn't it? Amazing, isn't it beautiful? Like that seven-year-old experience. <laughs> I wonder how I fit in. So how can I be a member, a functional member of this body that I'm part of? That's the change that I think is hugely, that we are hugely resistant to. And I think it's, I think it's simply because this the other mode this mode has billions billions anyway millions of years of inheritance of of energy behind it of inheritance if you like our ancestors going back to the viruses right this is what drove them this is the basic instinct basic drive and we use all sorts of cultural elaborations and clevernesses, cleverage, I'd like to use the cleverage, to find more, to lever, leverage more and more ways of continuing along this path. 
It's a cultural elaboration on the survival instinct, on the on the id. The the the, the Sufis talk about, or well, some schools of Sufism talk about two basic motivations um, uh, in evolu in uh, in instinct, instinctual motivations. Survival, protection from harm, in other words, and pursuit of pleasure, which of course pleasure is mostly to do with reproduction, sexual. Um, there's another motivation they talk about, which I'll come back to, which corresponds with the contextualizing mode, but I'll come back to that perhaps. In your course, you uh, had a phrase that resonated a lot with me, which was uh, survival and style. This idea that, you know, previously we're motivated by seeking shelter and food and reproduction. But now in our modern day, we still have those instinctual impulses kind of unconsciously motivating us. And now it might be seeking status or, you know, wanting to not feel shame. Could you kind of talk a bit more about those like unconscious forces that might be shaping our decisions? I like, I'm, I've been very interested in the parallels between wisdom traditions. And um, that phrase, survival in style, comes from a theologian, a sort of mystical theologian called John Shea. And as soon as he he used it, I thought that's um, that really sums it up. And there's a sort of almost a comical element to it because it's a survival of style as well. It's like style is what really matters. How do I keep up the old way of putting it? How do I keep up with the Joneses? Um, can I get the right sort of whatever it might be? It's, Take your pick, trainers, cars, houses, kitchens, you name it, that my peers, the peer group I'm part of, kind of expects of me. And I, I'm going to keep coming back to the same motivation. I think it is a cultural... There is, we have this desire for, for growth, or we have desire. Let's just say we have desire for something. And I think in human terms, it's a desire for meaning, a desire for meaning in life and, and who am I, identity. And that then gets clothed in cultural beliefs, beliefs, meanings, values. Um, you know what I mean by that, I think. I think most people here will know what I mean by that. Um, just look at your own. What 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 cultural clothing of beliefs, meanings, values, priorities, interests do you give to justify what it is that you want? That, of course, then converts into behaviour. The actual going out and finding the stuff that corresponds with the with the belief system, the worldview, sometimes it's called. And of course, that everything we consume takes in prisoners of the sun there's this phrase um everything that we become more of nature becomes less because it, we live in a finite system so it's not just sunlight it's not just energy it's not just for it's the materials as well the notion of ecological footprint which came before carbon footprint is about the energy and the materials and how much is needed to produce all of that. 
Um, so it also produces waste because, of course, fashion, not just the fashion industry, but fashions, school crazes, if you like, made into adult things, means that we're constantly changing and wanting new, wanting new styles, new styles. And and this feels like something very similar to, if we don't, can't get it, it's like being starved. So there is this sort of psychocultural survival in, I need to survive, but psychologically, culturally, and it all produces waste as well. Physically, it produces waste. It has to then be disposed of. So, um, yeah, that's survival in style. Mm. So you talked about the the consuming mode, um, which relates to survival in style, and then the alternative is what you call that contextualizing mode. Can you explain like what that would look like for someone to explore or step more into a contextualizing approach to life? There's a sense of wonder in it. If you can connect with your sense of wonder, a sense of awe, that wowness of basic existential questions too, but psycho-spiritual existential questions. How come I'm here? How come this has all happened? How come there's this blue dot in the universe of mostly blackness, and with blackness with twinkles, nothingness with twinkles? And, um, and how come this flourishing, this this diversity of life, has come from what a big bang? from a kind of what another person um, has, has called John Martin, Sahajananda, has called um, the uh, non-conscious, non-differentiated unity, that origin, to this process of evolution, essentially in a nutshell, which is about increasing diversity of species, of all sorts of things, Species essentially becomes all sorts of things in the human world, or even in the non-human, the other than human world, um, and a deepening of complexity. So a, a more complexity. So this complexity that we're dis, that we're demonstrating now of being able to reflect on our, ourselves, each other, on our world, on ourselves, this reflexive capacity allows us to go to do to say wow yes to find me it is possible to find meaning in being part of something bigger it doesn't damage the ego it doesn't assault the ego sense of i by ego i simply mean sense of i sense of oneself it actually gives it more depth i think to know that rather than trying to fill up a gap, a perennial constant gap inside myself by consuming, be it literally consuming food, alcohol, cigarettes, cars, stuff, stuff, 
but also there's a very insidious kind of spiritual consumerism too, whereby I'm going to have this experience. This experience is mine. This experience of oneness is mine. But without the, the reciprocity, so there is a kind of shape. It goes, you have the experience, and then it goes out again. So what are the implications of this experience for how I actually live my life? How I contribute as a participant member of this amazing thing that I'm part of. And remembering that you're part of it is simply the, is, a, is a good start, actually. Um, it's putting oneself in context. So to bring it more into uh, the practical realm of how people can start to implement this in their day-to-day -day lives, um, from like personally, from, from working with you and taking your course, I, I started to think more deeply about my place in the ecosystem and even like little things like it's so obvious, but thinking about how, when I'm eating food, that it's like sunlight energy that has then been photosynthesized into sugar. And then I'm like eating that sunlight. It just made me think on deeper levels about what I was doing or even things like I remember learning that when you put nutrients into a landfill, that then those nutrients will never again be recycled. And like a natural part of the ecosystem is that our, our resources get continually used over and over. So now I feel kind of this like physical pain when I have to put something into the landfill. I just, I understand what I'm doing differently. And, and it gets to a point where it's so painful that I'm like, okay, I'm motivated to co to do composting and to take different actions. I'd love to hear you talk about more about these um, everyday choices and why that's really important. Or just chuck your apple core on a on a flower bed that keeps this precious fertility soil that has taken millions of years cycling, being used and reused. Uh, to form and when you put an apple core in the bin what I call the landfill bin and either it's burnt or it's buried as you said actually it is recycled but not as soil when it, if it's if it's landfilled it eventually will decompose anaerobically without air rather than in the normal way the the, the functional way I think I'll say and it becomes methane, which is 20 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, or some people are even saying 25 times. So, or if it's burned, well, yes, it becomes carbon dioxide. Um, so I think, I think what you said is really touches me because that's, that's the, I've often, oh, I don't know, in something I wrote many years ago, these changes have to be heartfelt. They have to be heartfelt. We have to really feel them in your body as you were just expressing. Because if it's just economic incentives, you can make, you know, you can, I don't need to go into it, economic incentives or legislative punitive measures, then it taps into the same old consumer mode. 
And once the incentive's taken away or the law is broken, which is always the tendency with laws, isn't it, to try and break them <laughs> in these little ways anyway, um, to, to, to find the loopholes, that's what I mean to say, then nothing has really changed. There's, it's shallow. It's, it's shallow. It's not looking beneath the surface. This, I think what you're alluding to is the notion of everyday attention or attention to everyday little activities as a psycho-spiritual and ecological spiritual practice. Because everything we do, every little decision we make, every little action we, we take, either contributes to the sustaining the integrity of the ecosystem and the life support systems, ecological life support systems, or contributes to its disintegration. So that's what it's about. And, you know, spiritual practice everywhere is about, is it not really, in its heart, about, maintain, about the integrity, about the oneness. It's non-dual. Even the Abrahamic traditions are non-dual actually, then there's a complexity there, but then it's all about the one creation, the one ever-evolving creation, but it's still one. As John Martin Sahajananda says, it's that movement from non-differentiated unity to differentiated unity, the harmony of the parts, the, the naming of the parts, Gregory Basin talks about. Um, the patterns that connect. So we can every so this is a everyday life can be a spiritual practice of being part of or not part of through attention to whether my actions and decisions are and we can never do this definitively, but it's a it's always a process. Contributing to the integrity, the, the continuing integrity or the continuing disintegration. And it's everything. I mean, I've you've seen my my list of my brainstormed list of things. You know, I no longer use plastic pens. Now, this is about habits. It's about paying attention to our habits, which are culturally imbued in us. And one day I thought, you know, I'd seen photos of turtles with pens through their mouths and all sorts of other plastic things and I thought what can I do it's really hard to stop using plastic for food very hard indeed and that's another thing <laughs> sorry brackets I'm going to come back to the plastic pen right but the um, biodegradable plastic bags now here's another habit it's very illustrative of how powerful habits and beliefs are after all they save time don't they if we don't have to think about it but we do have to think about it because the habit is to put biodegradable plastic bags in the bin. They might say all over them, compostable, but they go in the bin because the association is with plastic, you know, and uh, dog poo bags as well. And the dog poo goes in the bin, into landfill, methane, loss to the ecosystem to the fur to the very thin fertile layer of the ecosystem so don't put anything of a biological origin 
in the bin. Just don't. Put it in the compost or, or flick it into the leaves, you know. Not the plastic, not the real plastic, just the biodegradable stuff. Uh, tissues. How many tissues do we use in cafes all the time? Well, why don't we reuse them for something and have a bin in our bathroom that we can, you know, we can put them in and use them for other things. Use your imagination. Um, but the plastic pens, just one day I saw that I thought, I had all these plastic pens. Why have I got all these plastic pens? So ever since then, I've just not used plastic pens. I've used pencils because pencils are compostable. So long as they're not those clever pencils that are made out of plastic cups, because then you sharpen them, you think it, you imagine in that case that it is biodegradable, you put <laughs> along come the microplastics. It's just about putting your, using your thinking in a different way, systemically, systemic thinking. I could read off a whole list, but yeah. I've, I've seen your list. I have, I tried to implement <laughs> as many as possible, but yes, for this interview, I used Amazon and uh, yeah, I sent you some headphones and uh, the Amazon shopping habit is one of the things to be conscious of. It is of. one of them, yeah, yeah. Thinking about the resources used, the packaging, the fossil fuels that are wasted in doing that. The but, clicking on websites. Yeah. You know, what we're doing here is is... Using the servers heating up, you know, they're massive. Yeah. And we're moving more and more and more and more towards more of it. Yeah. So, you know, in trying to, to share these ideas with people in my circles, a common response is like, well, you know, most of the impact on the ecosystem is coming from corporations who are like burning fossil fuels. Like it's not really to do with the individual and like what impact can I as one person have so I'd love to hear your response to this and I'll do that I, but I would like to flag something up that I'd like to talk about because I think there will be people listening to this who say yes but renewables you know that's the answer and I want to come back to that because it's yet another avoidance of the deeper transformation which is necessary, and I'll explain why in relation to, to, that, to that proposition. Uh, I think it relates to your current question as well, because for me now, yes, I know, it's relatively new in the public consciousness, this threat to our home planet, to Earth. Earth. Let's just call it Earth. We don't talk about the Jupiter, the Mars. We talk about the, but we talk about the Earth as though it's somehow over there. It is Earth, and Earth is in us, and we are in it, and there is no getting away from that. Even if we do go to the Mars, <laughs> um, uh, and I know that this now that it's mainstream, people are very frightened and anxious. There's a lot of eco-anxiety therapy going on. People are very frightened because they're going to lose 
something that, in a way, even in, in environmental circles, is framed in consuming mode. It's about what I'm going to lose, what I can't have anymore, or what my grand, grandchildren won't have. Or, for me, I don't think it's about saving the earth. Say, no, you see, I did it. Saving earth anymore. I mean, it is. Of course it is. It always has been my whole life. But saving puts it again over there. We do all these subtle ways of detaching ourselves. And no, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I can't do very much as an individual. And that I can use that as an excuse. But like you, to do that just hurts. I can't. I can't do that. It hurts. It actually hurts. Because I know that it sometimes feels as though, and this is part of a kind of answer to the previous question, one of them, <laughs> uh, that because I am part of Earth, and we're all part of Earth, Earth is actually speaking through us. It, it is we are expressions of Earth. And in what you were describing and what I'm relating to, I've, it's as if something... I'm just... It's like I'm experiencing what Earth is experiencing because I'm part of it, and it just... I can't do it. So simply being someone who is an organism, let's just call myself an organism, that is able to reflect and wanting, because volition is so important, we have to want to do it. This is the heartfelt thing. To be living in that way, even if it's just a tiny, tiny little speck, which I am and you are, gives meaning to my life. And that's what it's about. It's about living deeply, living systemically, living ecosystemically, living, as I see it, trans helping to transpersonalize this earth through those that choose to do it. So we become a little bit of, I don't know, a little evolutionary impulse. I think that's worth it, no matter what happens. No matter what happens. So for people who don't know what transpersonalizing means, could you just briefly explain your definition of the transpersonal? The universe, the earth, the cosmos, the divine, through its own creation, is trying to become conscious of itself. Right? And we are a species that can do that. And in so doing, we become the transpersonalizing agents. So it's more than us, but it's not for us. If we're just taking from what's called the transpersonal, then actually we're using it for personal purposes, not transpersonal purposes. In order for it to become transpersonal purpose, we have to actually do that, complete that circuit and reciprocate and say, it's not all about me. It's about my role in bringing conscious consciousness and harmony. Because 
because the name for unity in diversity is harmony. That's that's what I have to do if it's to be really transpersonal, because transpersonal has to be the transpersonal, has to become conscious, and it can only become conscious through conscious parts of itself, which is us, and possibly hippopotamuses, possibly hippopotami, rhinos, yes, ants, maybe, we don't know, but it can be, we know it can be through us, and we're constantly avoiding it. Okay, so go on then. What's the thing about the renewable energy? All right, well, this is back to Prisoners of the Sun in the third part of Prisoners of the Sun, and they're all worth watching. The first part is about soil. second part is about basic ecosystem dynamics using the African savannah as the illustration, and the third is more about money and fossil fuels as parts of the overall ecosystem and the beliefs that go with it. And in the, towards the end of the third part, so I'm bit of a spoiler i suppose but the, this is remember this is 1992 they um they show this amazing sterile machine it's not sterile it's very 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 powerful it is the experimental nuclear fusion reactor at cullum in oxfordshire now nuclear fusion that's not nuclear fission and it says so what is this this is sunlight itself. A machine for generating electricity by nuclear fusion uses very little... It doesn't even use uranium, I don't think. No, it doesn't. I don't know the technicalities, but there is no pollution. There is massive energy, like the energy of the sun, as it says, every creature's dream. Every creature's dream to have maximum sunlight with no damage only a little bit of water as a as a byproduct every creature's dream and then there's this pregnant pause and it says and if we have managed to do to the rest of nature what we've done to it with fossil fuels just imagine what we'll be able to do to it with this i went this is 92 click 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 this is not about technology. Whatever powerful technology we have, we will use in the same way until we transform our mode of meaning, of how we try to find meaning. And it was a key thing in me eventually, training as a psychotherapist. At least it prompted me to start asking the, the more psychological questions about, about the blocks and the catalysts to this more fundamental second-order change, or even third-order change, spiritual change. This is, this is proper spiritual change. It's grounded. Spirit is grounded. Teilhard de Chardin. Yes, Teilhard de Chardin. He said, he talked about the spiritualization of matter. And the, in other words, finding that into integratedness and the materialization of spirit, they must go together. Other, how can we do it if we're not in bodies? You know, how can we do anything? Yeah, so. Yeah, because the thing is, even if we had renewable energy, we would still have that consuming and that desire, and you never get to a place of feeling content or whole. No. You always have that mm. need for more and more and more. So 
yeah, the contextualizing mode results in more peace. So it's how to reorientate that desire. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not homing in on the Sufis for any particular reason, though it's a wonderful tradition. I've been reading Hafiz, so it's like, yeah, very aligned with what I've been reading. Oh, have you? Right. Um, well, this came from a contemporary Bakhtiar, that's her name. Uh, she describes two modes of what she calls guidance. One is called Takwini guidance, and the other is called Tashri guidance. Now, Tashri guidance is equates with the kind of contextualizing mode, whereby I listen to what the Christic tradition describes as the still small voice within, but it's not just that, it's in all, it's everywhere. What is this, some quiet voice, I, I sometimes call it the whispering voice, because everything else shouts at us about how we should be, but this whispers, it doesn't shout. <clears throat> and if we can th listen to that, it's likely to lead us, it's more likely to lead us towards something that really feels true for us. Now, and by true, I love that word, it means aligned. And it comes from the Sanskrit word meaning tree as well. The, the aligning of spirit and matter, heaven and earth, nature, through, through the trunk gate. Um, and that, that equates to contextualizing orientation because it's about being part of the bigger of something bigger and what's my role within it if we don't listen to that Bhaktiya points out the default position is what equates to the consuming mode the consuming orientation whereby we're driven by the instincts that we share with everything so there is a certain pull out that humans have to do from that. I mean, it's so ironic that a biological instinct is, is, um, is what's responsible for this dysfunctional behaviour. How worried are you about the state of Earth and what's, what's happening? You know, when I, back in 1999, I wrote, I wrote an article. It was for a millennium, it was for the millennium. And um, I ended it by saying, having quoted something about this, we are a species that can, as it were, be the awareness of the universe becoming conscious of itself, because that's what we are, it's what we can be. And does that have something to do with the niche, our particular, to use the systemic evolutionary term, the emergent property that nature, the earth is coming up with, that we don't know if it's existed in other species, but anyway, we know it exists in us, this capacity to, to find, a, to be that part of the ecosystem that reflects on itself, or to be a part of the ecosystem that reflects on itself, to the extent that we do, in a human way, not in an elephant way, not in a hippo way, but or in an ant way, but in a human way. And if we don't do that, if we don't step into that, and we just carry on being driven by this 
basic consuming growth instinct, well, what a pity that would be, because it will. It's continuing to destroy. We could destroy ourselves. We could destroy so many other species, as we already have. You know, the white rhino was already in danger of extinction when I was seven years old. It was one of the animals that stimulated me to get into this. But Earth is such, I think you said at the beginning, destroying Earth. Well, no, we won't destroy Earth, not as such, but we will destroy Earth in its current condition. And it could take billions of years because the trajectory of evolution is to increasing diversity and deepening complexity, billions of years to come up with another species that can try again. So I'm just disappointed. It's such a disappointment. I used to think, well, I remember when I was 14 thinking, ecology and the oneness of everything and how it all interrelates, it's just amazing and obvious. In 10 years time, everything will be different. Well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I consider the idea that the degradation of the ecosystem like isn't happening at a rate that is distressing enough for us as humans to be like, oh my gosh, we have to do something now. Like with the COVID pandemic, for example, it was like, okay, disaster situation, like everyone stay home. Like there were measures that were taken that haven't been taken since like wartime. So, you know, this last week, we've had a lot of smoke coming across the US from the Canadian forest fires and it's horrible, but there's part of me that's like, I think it would be better to have more of that now rather than allowing these like time lags to happen and then it's too too late. Um, do you have any comments on that idea? I'm not sure, Kaz. I'm not sure about that. Um, because it goes with an assumption that the worse it gets, there is there is this assumption that all we have to do is go through real crisis and then we will change. But that's one of the very things that doesn't take account of our psychology and our, the psychology of resistance and denial. The power of this instinct that says, no, I've got to survive. The harder it gets, the more people are going to want to survive unless they've gone through some sort of shift in orientation. And that's very scary. I think that's very scary. You only have to look at history to see what happens when, when people feel threatened. Yeah, so crisis situations would increase those survival instincts, which would make us act even more out of alignment. Yeah. And the thing about coronavirus, it, it was very, very specific to us. This... Ecosystemic breakdown will never be like that. We'll always be able to find a way out. But this was something that got inside us and threatened, threatened us directly. Um, way back, gosh, in the 80s or 90s, people used to talk about complex environmental problems and simple or complex problems and simple problems. And seatbelts is a simple one because... It just involves one action, one change of habit. But the ecological predicament involves the changing of whole ways of being. 
whole sets of values, whole priorities, whole sets of interests at every level in in society in in a in a human life. And so I get what you're saying. Um if only we we you know we could have more of a more pressure but i'm i the, the psychological effects of that worry me but they worry me because of the disappointment that we don't actually have a bloody good look at what we're doing collectively and individually collectives often a, a deflection from the individual i think but the but the actual path the actual transformation the actual meaning comes from the individual you can you can say we're conditioned by this that and the other but there is always the opportunity to respond and respond reflectively in a thinking way and a feeling way of course yeah but feeling without the thinking can lead us to back into the instinct again that's important i think so if you had to uh like summarize your like greatest hope for humanity like what would what would your message be like what what's the ultimate thing you want to share with people let's really recognize what we have been trying to tell ourselves for thousands of years through the really deep wisdoms that have been part of us and there have always been a few in every culture in every religion in every time in history that have understood this ecosystemic way of meaning if you like it's ecosystemic awareness but the power of this instinct just seems to lead them to being ostracized the the king of england now the king of britain the king of the uk the king of i don't know yeah the 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 united kingdom king what do we call him anyway king charles um he has been ridiculed throughout his life for talking about harmony people don't know that he wrote a book called harmony a new way of looking at the world which starts by saying this is a call to revolution a sustainability revolution but we have to not just campaign but understand the systemic outlook the systemic the nat- the, the kind of the natural grammar of of the ecosystem and that we and our beliefs and our meanings and our values and our psychologies are all part of it um yeah i mean there are there are plenty of people there who are describing this but but they tend to get marginalized and where do you source your hope from and are are you hopeful that humanity can get their act together and come into alignment oh nice way of putting it come into alignment with with nature, with the ecosystem, yeah, with Earth. Um, I'm not very hopeful, no, that they can in time. 
I think well, let me rephrase that. I think this is a this is a little little argument light-hearted but argumentative dialogue I have with an ecologist friend of mine, Oliver. And uh I say we can, because we all have the same sorts of brains, we're all human, we can do it, we are able to do it, but we lack the will. We have the capacity, but we lack the will. And he says, well, maybe we can't do it. Maybe we, maybe we, as a whole species, we don't have the capacity. Maybe there are some people that just can't think that way. Uh, I don't know. But but I think what I'm coming to is that we we seem to lack the capacity. So many of us lack the capacity to have that will <laughs> to decide to do it. And that's so sad. That's what I find. Because I think we can. We have the, the hard wiring. Okay, maybe that's quite a good metaphor. We have the hard wiring, but we kind of lack software. We've got the wrong software for doing it for using that hard wiring in a transformative way. Do you have any ideas on what it would take for a big significant shift to happen? Well, that's the question that I ask you in the in the course, isn't it? What do, what do you think it would take? I don't know. There's always this factor X, why one person and not another? And I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Um, why, why, why did it, why did I get that happening when I was so young that set me up on this? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then once you've had it, of course, then there's the possibility that you can roll back down the hill, the boulder rolls back down the hill and, and it just becomes, that's why I think we have carbon footprint rather than ecological footprint, because carbon you can always make a profit from. You can make a business of all different sorts, but stopping extinction, pausing and stopping so that the ecosystem can recover rather than try and be fixed by our technologies, that's never going to make a profit. And it doesn't get quantified. It can't be quantified. People have tried. So we need a shift from the quant. We need to recognize that without the qualitative, without the forest, there is no timber. Without the life support system, there is no timber which can be cut down and sold. There's, the quantitative depends on the qualitative. But in economics, what we constantly try to do is shove the qualitative into a quantitative frame. And therefore, you always lose the quality. You believe, maybe, that by having more money, we're going to have a better quality of life. Maybe. Have a look at Affluenza, the book by um, Oliver James. It's not doesn't necessarily follow. Um, so, to value the qualitative as the qualitative, I think this is a key thing. Yeah, and that takes a that takes a big shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like one of the uh, Native American traditions um, 
would look at, you know, like a tree having essential worth in itself as a living being. And they, instead of calling a tree or a rock it, they use like pronouns, like as if it's like a living being and like has an essence in itself. Whereas in our Western worldview, we just look at the natural world as things and resources. They probably have a pronoun that's non-gender, yes. non-gendered. Paul, is there anything else you'd like to share that I haven't asked you about? I think there's one thing I'd like to say, actually, and that's that this peer pressure is really, really powerful. Because um, it can make you feel really lonely. This the changing deep, that's another thing I think I'll include, roll into this, that the job is the, to be the transpersonalizing influence of Earth, organ of Earth, if you like. If Earth is an organism, what is our role in that organism? <clears throat> to be, and as I say, other species may be doing it too, but we can only know what we're doing and what we're ignoring and neglecting. We can know ourselves as something more than just ourselves. That's what all this spiritual experience is about. To feel the oneness that we're part of. It's, but we need the reciprocity too. We need to say, thank, not just thank you transpersonal or thank you God or thank you whatever language you want to use for what you've given me. Well, okay. And then we ask for bless for it, for it to bless what we receive. But the circuit needs to be completed. Therefore, I am that. That's an ancient saying. I am that I am. That's from the Kabbalistic Judaic. Moses uh, said to Moses on Mount Sinai, I am that. So if I am that, then what am I giving? What am I giving back? What am I contributing to this circuit, to this metabolism? And I think this, what we can do, which is it's so necessary if we're going to get through this, is that to offer that transpersonalizing role in the ecosystem so that it can become the, the conscious trans person through the persons that it has itself brought into existence, right? Through billions of years of evolution. And it's, it's not new, it is ancient, but it's always it's becoming very urgent now that this, because without it, we will just keep doing this. We will, one way or another, in more and more sophisticated ways, we will just keep orientating like that rather than that. And it's, it can be so lonely, that's the thing. It, it can be really hard to find kindredness with others that are doing that. And, but as I say, there is an inherent meaningfulness in it that can come for life, even though it's lonely. And it's great when you meet other people like you, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's a great place to to wrap up so yeah thank you so much for coming on it's been a delight to talk to you and I'm hopeful that the more that 
there are people like us who wake up to to this information that there could be like a significant transformation on our planet in the future so please keep what you're doing because I know that you affect your students significantly like me yeah okay thank you and I need that actually because I it's you know it's it can be hard with this disappointment thing I guess there is hope there but optimism it's sort of I have to keep I know that people can do it I think my hope is in that I know people can do it whether they will choose to but yeah thank you I'll, I'll keep doing it then thank you yeah and if nothing else my my life feels a lot more deep and meaningful thanks to everything that you've taught me when when people say things like that and let me and I know it does make it all worthwhile because it can't happen without it I don't think it can happen without it all right thank you so much Paul I really appreciate it Thank you. Thanks, Kaz. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Paul Maitany. If you would like to find out more about Paul, you can find his videos on Vimeo. You can find his articles on academia.edu. And if you feel like you're interested in joining his transpersonal eco-psychology course, you can do so as an open learner. It's a 10-week course. The next one starts in February 2024. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can find the details at aleftrust.org. I'll put all of these links in the show notes. Please subscribe to this podcast. It really helps me if you take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your social media. It helps if you leave a nice comment um, on YouTube. It helps if you know someone who'd be interested in this episode, if you could share it with them via an email or a text message. We have been growing exponentially and it is thanks to people like you who just take a second to share. So... Thank you so much for supporting me and my voice and giving a platform to these amazing thinkers. I really, I really appreciate it. And I'll catch you next time. Until then, take care. Before I go, I would like to give a shout out to Zachary Walter, who composed the gorgeous music that you hear in this episode. If you'd like to find out more about him and his musical compositions, check out ZacharyWalterMusic.com.